We will be in Ezra 3 this morning. Thank you, Lord, for a chance to open your word now. And we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts. Help us to think and to hear. Help us to know that your word is powerful and effective and that you have things for us to learn today. So bring those truths home to our hearts, we ask. In your precious name, amen. Please be seated. I didn't mention, by the way, that Brian and Cheryl are here too for the first time in a while, so so good to have them here with us. I think they're here, aren't they? They're hiding somewhere. Oh, there they are. I'm glad you guys are here. With any building project that you do, uh, whether it's a house or some kind of other project, and there's a lot of things that need to go into it if you want to turn out turn out right. Um, but if all you do is plan and plan and plan and plan and never do anything past that, nothing comes of it. When our girls were in junior high and high school, they decided the rooms were small enough that I wanted to help them, and so I decided I was going to build loft beds so that they'd have a bunk on top and a desk and stuff underneath. And so I thought about it a lot, and then I drew some plans up for it, and I made the measurements. I uh, decided how much wood I was going to need. I went to the store, got all the wood, brought it home, and took about two weeks to do this project of all three of these beds. But what would it have been like for me to do all of that work, all of the planning, everything else, and then just let the pile of lumber sit there? Not all that useful had I just done that. Now, the people of Israel have been in the land at this point about three months. They've moved into their towns and their homes If they were needing to take a place in Jerusalem and make it habitable, they did that. They also made sure that they got their fields ready and all of the harvesting things that needed to take place. Anything they needed to happen in the fields, they took place, put cattle out where they needed to be. All those kinds of things had taken place. But so far, nothing had been done to rebuild the temple. That's why they were coming. That's why they were sent They were sent with the specific purpose of going back to Jerusalem and establishing the temple and building it and establishing once again the worship of God in the place that he had designated. Um, So anyway, the first things first hadn't happened quite yet. They were there. They were in the land. All 50,000 that had come with Zerubbabel, they're there. And so now it's just a matter of saying, okay, how do we make the first thing first? And that's what we see starting to happen as we get into chapter 3. So let's look at verse 1. In early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. So translations do this differently. Some say seventh month, but what it really comes down to is it is in the autumn and has taken three months since they have arrived. And it says all the people assembled, and I'm assuming that means probably all of the 50,000 or most of them that had come back came to Jerusalem if they weren't already there. And it was just the whole idea of coming together with a purpose. All right, what do we need to do next? It's kind of the thought that comes through. Now, that seventh month is the, the month of Tishri in the, in the Hebrew calendar. And it's a month that has several feasts, important Hebrew feasts. Um, it, the, on the first of Tishri, it's the Feast of Trumpets, known as Rosh Hashanah. It's a celebration of Jewish New Year. The tenth of Tishrei is the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. 
And this is the time when Jews pray and ask forgiveness for their sins and sacrifices are offered. And then the last thing that happens in this month is from the 15th to the 21st. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or the Festival of Shelters, the various titles that it receives. But it was a place where they had they would come, they would build these little shelters, and they would live in them for seven days. And it was to remind them of leaving Egypt and living in those kind of tents or shelters that they did all through the desert. Um, it was the whole idea of something temporary. It was never permanent, even though they spent 40 years doing it. Then we have the next verse, Jen Jeshua. By the way, this is a, a professor of uh, in seminary told me, if you are wondering how to pronounce a name, just remember, everybody else is too. So pronounce it boldly, and they will think you've got it right. Okay, so anytime I pronounce a name, it's either going to be Spanish, <laughs> the way a Spanish person would say it, or it's just going to just boldly, boldly pronounce. So anyway, then Joshua, son of Jehozadak, joined his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, with the family in rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses. And so you've got Yeshua, who is the high priest. He's a descendant of Aaron. You've got Zerubbabel, who's a governor descendant of David. And then this is the whole point they're coming together now, is to say, okay, here's the temple and all the rubble that's there. Let's start with the altar. Let's start with the altar. The one place where the Jewish people were supposed to come and bring their offerings was the altar in front of the temple. So they find that, they get it all cleared out, and that's what they're going to start to build at that point. Now look at what it says in verse 3. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, and that word afraid really means terror, they were terrorized by the local residents. They rebuilt the altar at its old site, Then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and each evening. So they, and NIV says, despite their fear, or New American Standard, despite their terror, they went ahead and they cleared away what needed to happen, got the foundation of the altar there, and then built the altar that would be in front of the temple again once they finished the temple. Now they built the altar for a purpose, to offer sacrifices. And so they immediately started the morning and evening sacrifices that were required, and then there were other things like uh, monthly and others as well. Um, <clears throat> so they wanted to offer the sacrifices required by Mosaic Law. Now, these are the first sacrifices that have been offered in 50 years, if we have the dates and times right, since the destruction of the temple. Now, there are people that were deported before the temple was destroyed totally. There are three different deportations spread apart, and in, in the, the temple was still there 50 years prior to this, and then it was destroyed. And so, you know, here, here they are, once again, after 50 years, offering sacrifices in that area where the temple is going to be, or on the temple mount. Um, every morning, a one-year-old lamb was sacrificed, the same thing in the evening, along with other uh, things that were offered there now. The first thing that needed to start for them was this. We need to get the sacrificial system up and running. Let's get a place where we can offer the sacrifices. Let's get a place so that when we have to offer sacrifices, like for the you know Feast of Tabernacles, that we can do all the sacrifices during that time that are required. Well, we need an altar for that. And so in this month that has so many holy days, as well as the Festival of t- Tabernacles, they built that 
altar first. And they wanted to go ahead and start celebrating. So in spite of the fear that they had, they built the altar. Verse 4 says they celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed in the law, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings specified for each day of the festival. So they got up and running. Here they are celebrating. And that celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration of the goodness of God. What they're reminding themselves of is our city is devastated. It's destroyed. It's in ruins around us. There's no walls. There's a few homes that are working, but not much. And yet here we are in front of where the temple is going to be, offering sacrifices on the altar and remembering. Remembering that God brought us out of slavery through the wilderness and into the land. And they probably all built their shelters right there in that area during that whole week that they were there celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. They built those shelters. They're living there. And so you've got this important first thing taking place. The altar's done. Now we can do the feasts and the celebrations that we're supposed to. And so that's what they do. They they begin doing what God had originally told them in the law. They also offered, verse 5, the regular burnt offerings and the <clears throat> offerings required for the new moon celebrations and the annual festivals as prescribed by the Lord. The people also gave voluntary offerings to the Lord. So this was above and beyond things that were required by the law. They gave voluntarily and they gave so that the temple itself could begin to be built. And so that's the kind of thing that's going on. You have couple of things going on. You have free will offerings and free will sacrifices which are being offered because people want to, because people desire to be a part of this whole process of seeing the temple be built. Um, remember, this is very similar to what happened when they built the very first tabernacle in the wilderness. And, and they were looking for certain kinds of materials. And, and so the word went out to all the people in all their little in all their tents, hey, we need these things. And all of a sudden there's gold and silver and all kinds of things come pouring in. So much came in from the voluntary offerings for the tabernacle that Moses said, okay, that's enough. Stop. We don't need any more. We're good. Can you imagine someone saying, don't give any more? But that was all they needed at that point in time. And so this is what's going on here. People are giving voluntary offerings. And then verse 6. Fifteen days after, before the festival of shelters began, the priests had begun to sacrifice burnt offerings. So they knew that this festival was coming. They got that altar ready, and, and so they're beginning to offer the sacrifices daily and monthly. And, and the priests had begun to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. This was even before they had started to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. So the temple's still there, probably a big pile of rubble, but the altar's intact. The altar's ready to go. The altar is able to serve the purpose. You've got priests and Levites, and they can offer all of the sacrifices that are required. And so they are excited that God is doing something. Now, there's an implication here that I think would be good for us to pause and look at. Verse 3 in NIV says, Despite their fear, uh, despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrifice burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. So here, this is a really important thing for us to remember. They were scared. The people around them were not Jews. The people around them, if you remember, when Assyria took the ten tribes out of Israel, they resettled other people from other places. When the southern tribes got taken away, many of those people who were 
uh, you know, different nationalities kind of migrated down. And so the people surrounding Jerusalem, the area, were not Hebrew in any way. They weren't Jewish. And so now they're saying these people are they're concerned about all the community around them. And they're wondering what's going to happen. As we get further into the book, you'll see they were right to think about that possibility. But they thought about the danger of what they were doing. And they said, you know what? Let's build the altar anyway. Let's build the altar. That's why we came back. So let's get the altar built and let's start offering the sacrifices. Now again, three months have gone by since they got there. Uh, the temple's still in ruins, but that altar is up and running. And, and, and the altar is the focal point for the feasts and the festivities that they have, the sacrifices that are offered. I wonder, though, if they aren't wondering, wow, this is a lot more work than I thought it would be. <laughs> you know, they get there. The city's pretty much ruined, no walls, and, and there's just stone. And, and maybe it took them a, quite a while to start clearing all of that debris, getting down to a place where they could build again. So they did it first for the, for the altar. They got that built and that ready to go. And they did it in spite of enemies all around. A little bit further, we study, we'll be studying Nehemiah, and Nehemiah was still facing enemies around when he started to build the wall. So the thing that's important here, I think, is the determination and the commitment of the people who came back to follow God. There's some struggle. There's some things that are hard. But they had made a choice to go back, and they made a choice to go back to build the temple. That was one of the reasons they came back. That's why there were so many Levites and so many priests And so in order to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they needed an altar ready to go. And so that was their first commitment was to do that and get that taken care of. Now, things may not have been as great as they wanted. The city was in ruins. It was defenseless. But they were going to celebrate the goodness of God. Verse 4, they celebrated the festival shelters as prescribed in the law. So in other words, they were building all their little you know, temporary shelters all over the city and, and living in those shelters, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings specified for each day of the festival. And so as they're living in their shelters and as they're eating in their shelters and all that kind of thing, they're still going through that whole idea of remembering the wonderful goodness of God, the celebration that reminded them, don't look at the ruins, remember the goodness of God. Don't look at the rubble and the destruction around you. Remember, God is good. And so remembering God's, uh, this is what it's all about, um, the festival shelters. Remember God's deliverance, God's provision, God's protection. Deliverance from slavery, that was the first one. Then provision as he led them through the desert and, and got them uh, everywhere they needed to go. There was water, there was food anytime they needed it. Um, and then protection from enemies. And then even in, the, in their disobedience, Refusing to enter the land, then the 40 years that they just kind of wandered in that wilderness area for a while before God took them back, he still was going through all of that, taking care of them, watching over them. And maybe as they celebrated, this is my imagination, I'll give you that right up front, but maybe as they celebrated God's goodness, they may have done it with Psalm 103, David's psalm. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And then I I had fun making this just kind of into a a list, forgetting not any of his benefits or his blessings or his goodness. And then he gives us a whole bunch of those things that are his blessings. Forget not all of his benefits or his blessings, who forgives all your sins. 
Now what an important thing to remember. They've got the sacrifice going now, and, and maybe they're praising God and saying, God, you are amazing. You brought us to the wilderness. You forgave our sins. You didn't have to. Who heals your diseases. The whole idea of the blessing and the goodness of God working in, in any kind of situation physically. Who redeems your life from the pit. This is the whole idea of, of being saved from a horrendous situation. He redeemed them and brought them out of slavery and, and into the land of promise. He crowns you. What does He crown you with? Compassion and uh, love. What an amazing thing. As if God made a crown for them and said, Here, this crown's made of love and compassion and I'm crowning you with it. This is what, this is what I'm p- placing on you. My, my love and my compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things? And when we, one of the people I read said, this is the whole idea that God fills up all godly desires. You have a godly desire, God fills that up. What an incredible thing. And then so that your youth is renewed like the eagles, the whole idea of renewing strength and being helped to keep on going. And so maybe they used the psalm, maybe they used others, but the whole focus of their time together was we're praising God. We're remembering the exit out of Egypt, the travel through the wilderness, and the arrival in the land of promise. And all of that was because of the goodness of God. And so they have a celebration, a time to remember God's goodness. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. We also have a celebration, don't we? When we remember the goodness of God. Now, it's not a week long and we don't have to sit in shelters anywhere. But once a month, at least, we gather and we say, we're going to remember the goodness of God in our Lord's Supper, our communion service. We're going to take time and we're going to pause. We're going to stop and put everything else aside and remember the fact that Jesus came, that He lived, and He died for us, and they arose and ascended into heaven. And so we remember that as we gather together and, and we celebrate what God has done. And we remember that through um, the celebration of God's goodness at the cross. Now, just a hint. If you want to do something really fun to prepare for next week's communion service, read Psalm 103 Saturday night. Just kind of think that through. Or read it in the morning on Sunday before you come. Just You don't have to do it, but just one of those things that if, if, if you do, it's just one of those fun kind of things where you start thinking about the goodness of God as you're heading to a time when we celebrate the goodness of God. So our God, and this comes right out of what uh, Psalm 103 says, our God forgives. Amazing grace. God forgave me, continues to forgive me. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He cleanses us and forgives us. God heals. Yeah, sometimes God heals physically. There are times when we pray and ask and God does something miraculous. There are other times that we pray and God says, I'm going to work through the situation and I'm going to give you the grace to continue going even though you're not healed physically. And then there's the way that God does heal. And um, it's called ultimate healing, I call it. And that's the sense that when the Lord takes someone home, they are perfect better than they ever were here. They are healed fully, completely, and totally. So when my dad was dying of cancer, having fought that for seven or eight years, God healed him when he said, come on, Don, come home. So he heals. He redeems, paid the price to buy our freedom from sin and hell. He paid the price of the son's lives. 
He pours out His perfect love, His compassion. God loves us and He cares for us. And all we have to do is move forward any day of the week with our eyes open and we'll see the goodness of God in some way. He satisfies our desires. Uh, Our desires for godly things, He fulfills those. Um, I have desires for things that, yeah, you know, I'd love to have this or I'd love to have that. Oh, I'd like to have a really good computer. I don't need any of those things, but those, I'd love those. And God's not probably going to answer those. That's okay. But if I say, Lord, I really want to draw closer this week. Would you help me? I want to know you better. I want to set time aside to say, I want to focus on this question that I've asked. Those are the things God loves to answer. And he steps in and encourages and helps us. And then he renews our strength. I had a friend, um, his oldest son decided finally uh, that he'd had enough of God and he walked away. And one of the reasons he said was, well, God never comes through for me. And I'd known the family for a number of years. And um, one of the things that I found hard was that they always taught their kids, you got to believe in Jesus and get saved, and then you just got to obey and do all the right things, and God's going to give you anything you want, essentially. He's going to give you health. You're not going to have any marriage issues. You're not going to have difficulties financially. And they really believed this, and they pushed it, and they hammered it on their kids. And and for them, it seemed to be working for mom and dad. They had everything they wanted, and didn't have to think twice about spending money. And then he started to hit some hard times, and he wasn't getting this. I mean, hey, I, I believed. I've been trying to do everything that's right. And it's still, all this is happening. And it got worse. And eventually things just got so bad for him that he said, you know what? If this is what God's like. I don't want any part of this. You guys said God was going to be like this. Well, he's not. I, I'm through with God. He doesn't come through for me. That's why I struggle with those kind of messages. I, I believe God is a good God and that God answers prayers. I believe all of that stuff. But Absence of struggles and difficulties does not mean that that's going to be God's promise to absolutely everybody in the world. Uh, many Christians all over the world, we saw the video this morning, there are people in countries that, that uh, to just be a Christian is so hard and, and can even cause your death or, or persecution. And so we just need to really be careful. Talk about God's goodness, yes. Talk about His mercy and grace. Pray for the things that you long for. But if God says no, praise Him for the no's as well as the times He says yes or wait. Like the people in Ezra's time, we can celebrate the grace and the mercy of God. Circumstances and feelings change, but God never does. He does not change. He is good all the time. There you go. Let's try it again. God is good all the time. See, I, I, feel, I knew you knew it. I just didn't get it, you know, out there like I should have. Let's go into the next few verses together, starting verse 7. <clears throat> now, this is six months after they've had this Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, so now six months later, the people, verse 7, hired masons and carpenters and brought cedar logs from the people of Tyre, of Sidon, paying them with food and wine and olive olive oil. The logs were brought down from Lebanon mountains and floated across the coast, floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa, for King Cyrus had given permission for this. So they need this special wood for the temple, and so they had already arranged this with Cyrus, and so they send the 
goods up to a tire and they go ahead and get the logs and bring them down and they bring them in. And so that's one of the first things happening here. Now they're getting together. They're paying masons, stonecutters, and carpenters, those who are working with wood. They're paying for the materials to come down. And, and maybe during this time, they're also now working hard at getting all of the rubble of that temple out of there and somewhere else so that they have a clean place to start the foundation. They can't just build on the rubble or nothing would happen other than that it would fall down and, and break apart. So there's a six-month period of time. Now, some historians put this date together that this may be June 536, and that would be exactly 70 years before the first deportation, which was in 605 B.C. Now, that's a possibility, but then again, we don't know that 70 years, whether it was related to the first group of people who left the city or the second group or the third group. So there are different ways of looking at that, but we're looking... Right about 70 years from the time that the first people were taken out of Jerusalem to the time when they actually start building the temple again. Verse 8, the construction of the temple of God began in mid-spring during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem. So the second year after they had gotten there, now it wasn't at the end of the second year, it would have been two years, but in that second year, construction starts on that foundation. Um, <clears throat> The workforce was made up of everyone who had returned from exile, and it gives us a whole bunch of those names in there again and who was involved in the process. And so here they are. They're back. They're doing the work, uh, whether all 50,000 were working at the same time or whether diff- different crews of them came. Uh, but they had to, like I say, clean all the rubble off and then begin the process. Okay, let's lay it all out and let's start preparing the foundation. Now, scholars who specialize in these historical documents tell us that the temple construction in this time period that we're studying started at the same time way before when Solomon started to build. When Solomon started to build, it was that same month that it is now that they're starting to build. So there's some some parallels that are there. There's also some other parallels with other things, too. Verse 10, when the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple... The priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets, and the Levites descended, descendants of Asaph clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. Now, I got news for you. I'd like to hear this band. You know, really. I mean, hey, they, they just get through the foundation is laid. They take off their work clothes. They put on their praise and worship clothes. They get out those big long trumpets and the priests are lined up there and the other guys are out there with their cymbals and they celebrate. They let people know God has done something precious, something special. Look, we have the foundation done. We are ready to build. And so they celebrate that. Now, I wasn't here before this building existed, but I did see pictures of it when it was just a field, and I saw pictures of the celebration service they had when they dedicated the land and started the process of building this building. Take that and multiply it a 100,000 times, and you've got what the Israelites are doing. Because this is the temple that God had said needed to be established. This is the temple that God had said, build it in this way. And so here they are, and they've built the foundation, and that's it, man. We are going to celebrate, and they did. I would love to have heard it. So trumpets and cymbals. I've never been a big fan of cymbals, but hey, you know, they had cymbals. Um, And this is in verse 11. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good, his faithful love for Israel 
endures forever. And again, that, you'll find that theme all through the song, all through the Psalms. He is good. His faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. Now, I love the fact that verse 10 tells us they completed the foundation. So they've laid that foundation and it's done. The next step is to start building walls. And so the foundation is done and they celebrate that. In verse, uh, verse 11, they're praising and thanking God and they, they remind each other that God is good and compassionate, that His love endures forever, and that they're seeing the result of His love enduring forever right there in the process that they're going through. They have the altar and that's up and running and now they have the foundation of the temple and they're ready to go. Um, <clears throat> Many, uh, verse 12, but many of the older priests and Levites and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple foundation. I stop and think of it. Some of these guys are going to be, they probably, uh, in that last deportation when the temple was destroyed, these guys may have been 10, 12 years old. They have are now out of the land for 50 years and they come back and they're maybe in their 70s and they remember the temple. They remember the altar and they remember the sacrifices. They remember how spectacular Solomon's temple was. And they see the altar and they're thrilled about that and they see the foundation and they're happy about that, but they're also totally broken up because they remember the splendor of the first temple. And they're seeing that this is going to be a much, probably the same size, but a much humbler version of the temple than the one that they had grown up with. So they were crying. They were weeping. And they weren't shy about their weeping, okay? You know, uh, (laughs) I think I talked about one time that uh, if someone died, you were supposed to hire at least one wailing woman to come and and help with, uh, you know, people grieving. Well, when they were wailing, they knew how to wail. And these folks that were grieving, this is what it was. They were grieving because of the sin that had caused the destruction of the temple. And they're grieving over that. The rest of the verse says, the others, (laughs) however, were shouting for joy. And, And stop and think about that. You've got a group that had seen it and been taken out and brought back. And you've got a group that had never seen it. Who came. And they're looking at this thing. Yeah, this is awesome. This is wonderful. We have the altar. We got the foundation. We're going to have a temple again. We haven't had one in our lifetime. And so you've got both of these things going on. You've got weeping and you've got people yelling and they're excited and shouting for joy. Verse 13, the joyful shouting and the weeping mingled or mixed together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. So when they were expressing themselves, they did it vocally, loudly, uh, expressively, in any way that you can imagine. They were, they were crying and weeping and shouting for joy all together at the same time. Again, just because the temple was built on the same foundation would, did not mean it was going to be as nice or spectacular or splendid as the temple that Solomon had built. Also, there was courtyards and other things that, that were part of that whole complex when Solomon built the whole thing. But the reality was they were building the temple. They were started. The foundation had been built. Um, But again, there's that reminder from the older folks, hey guys, yeah, let's praise God, let's celebrate, but never forget what it cost when we were disobedient. The price of disobedience was high. 
There's an implication here. As I get older, I realize that I have fewer years in front of me than I do behind me. That happens. <laughs> and I can sympathize with the folks who looked at the foundation and wept because they remembered Solomon's temple. To weep over past sins and mourn the loss of the temple would have been proper for them. It would have been a good expression of what was happening. But it was also to remember that there was a horrible price for disobedience, but God also forgave. There was the grace of God that was being given to them as they came back after 70 years and they were rebuilding the altar and the temple and all of those things and especially the worship of God. That was what they came back to be able to get people back into doing. And, and one of the things that I, that I remember as I, as I study this is that Daniel was probably in the second deportation and he was way too old to come back. But Daniel was one of the guys who read for, from Jeremiah 70 years. That was it. And he started thinking it through. He said, hey, you know what? It's, it's been 70 years. And so what does Daniel do? Well, Daniel in verse, in chapter 9, verse 16, um, he's fasting, he's praying, he's wearing sackcloth. In view of all your faithful mercies, Lord, turn your furious anger away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. All of the neighboring nations mock Jerusalem and your people because of our sin and the sins of our ancestors. And so Daniel has is basically, he's again confessing before the Lord the sins of the people that had kick them all out of the land. And he's now coming to God and saying, Lord, we've gone through your judgment. We passed the 70 years. God, open your eyes and shine your smile on us again. And that's what he says in verse 17. Oh, our God, hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead. For your own sake, Lord, smile again on your desolate sanctuary. Or show favor again to your people and to the place that you have asked us to build your temple. So he's saying, Lord, listen, hear, please work in this situation. Verse 18. Oh my God, lean down and listen and open your eyes and see our despair. I love the way Daniel prays. Does God have eyes that can open and, and close? And, and No, but this is Daniel's way of, of being very specific with God. Lord, lean down. Look down from where you are. Listen. You know, listen to what's going on. Open your eyes. See our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, lies in ruins. We make this plea not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy. Anytime that we pray and we're confessing and we're bringing what we've done before the Lord and, and, in order to confess and be restored, it is always because of his mercy. We None of us deserve forgiveness. None of us. But in His mercy and grace, He listens, He forgives, and He works. Yeah, We make this plea not because we deserve help, but because of Your mercy. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. For Your own sake, do not delay. Oh my God, for your people 
and your city because of your name. So God, because of your people and your city, this is, this is what the place you chose. This is the place we built the temple. Lord, wake up. Here, listen. Help. Not because we deserve it, but because of your mercy. I, I, I love Daniel's prayer. He makes it very, very clear. We're the ones that deserve to be in captivity because of what we did and our disobedience. And he looks at the desolation of the city and he says, Lord, this is your city and your name's on it. We ask because of your mercy. The judgment is over and now it's time for restoration. God, help, please, please. I love the fact that Daniel's broken before God because of the sin of the nation. And he's talking to God about it. And he's saying, Lord, please forgive and restore. Fulfill your promise to return us to the land. Now Daniel had learned, I think, the lessons of the exile. He understood that the destruction of Jerusalem was the high cost that was paid for disobedience. And they were warned and warned and warned and prophets came and prophets came and prophets came and they with few exceptions, just turn away from God. And so Daniel's understanding that part of the process. It's interesting because God may not intervene when we willingly sin or flaunt our own behavior. But when we sin, it is always in God's presence. Let me say that again. Anytime we sin... It is always in God's presence because He's everywhere. That's the wonder and the the grandeur and the glory of God. That's why Daniel could mourn and say, you know, this is the price that we have paid. We have reaped what we have sown, disobedience and seeking after other gods. And so now Daniel's saying, okay, God, the price has been paid. Please restore us. And so he understood those that were weeping at the foundation of the temple. He understood that. Daniel got that. And as we are thinking through some of these lessons ourselves today, we need to always remember that um, when we come to the Lord, it should be with humility and it should be humbly and it should be to seek Him and to be restored to Him. We fall and stumble, then we confess and He forgives and, and we're restored. We need to be seeking after God and following Him with all our heart. I think that's one of the lessons that Daniel would give us from from the captivity. What do we take away from all this? Verse 12, Many of the older priests, Levites, and leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple. Um, The others, however, were shouting for joy. You got the same event, right? You you got the altar built, you got the Foundation laid, and some are weeping and mourning, and others are excited and joyful. Those who were older remembered the sin, and they remembered the cost, and those that were younger were remembering the the wonder of being able to come back and that God was again working. I've shared in the past that there are times in my own life, uh, in my past, that something happened or I said something or acted in a certain way that that even today still brings um, remorse. Not long ago, they've been confessed, restoration with God took place, restoration with the people whenever possible. Every now and then the enemy will bring those things, boom, right to my mind again. 
And at those times, I just have to go back to the truth of God's Word. There's no other cure. I can't just sit there and think my way out of it or whatever. I have to go back to God's Word. And the Apostle Paul, by the way, was a pretty arrogant man, full of pride uh, because of his training, his heritage. He was in, you know, the elite of the elite. And, and then he met Jesus, and everything changed. He went from being on the road to being one of the most influential people in, in Jerusalem and, and Israel to being nobody in their eyes. And he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And I wonder sometimes as he was writing the letter to the Philippians if he wasn't thinking of Stephen, who was martyred, and he was there present as the witness. I wonder if he wasn't thinking that or some of those kinds of things when he wrote Philippians 3.13. One thing I do, and this is where I go back to the scripture I go back to. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind And straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, I'm sure there were times that the images of the things that he had been a part of, having Christians killed, having Christians stoned, dragging them out of their homes, putting them in jail, and and all that he could do was to say, Lord God, you've forgiven me. I thank you for that. Help me to think and keep moving forward. And so that's the choice we make when we're faced with those kinds of things. You go back to the Word of God. The Word of God says keep moving forward. Keep focusing on the Lord. That is what you are called to do. Uh, Here's a poem I want to end with. It's called On Regretting the Past and Fearing the Future. That's this poem. My name is I Am. When you dwell on the past with its mistakes and regrets, I'm not there. My name is not. I was. When you focus on the future with its problems, doubts, and fears, I'm not there. My name is not. I will be. When you focus on today and live obediently in this moment, I am here. My name is I am. I believe Ezra teaches us, Ezra 3 teaches us a couple things. One is to learn from the past. That's why they were weeping. They were remembering the sins of the past, but then focus on God's goodness. They were also rejoicing and celebrating and remembering who God was and what he had done for Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that you speak so clearly from the past. And Lord, I pray that each of us would remember what's being taught here from your word this morning, that we would hang on to those truths and we would seek to live and follow you, our amazing God. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.